This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There was an idea. The Avengers initiative. I can do this all day. I'm a superhero. I come to bargain. I love you, please, Hansen. That's my secret, Cat. I'm always angry. You should have gone for the head. And I. Wakanda forever! Why is Gamora? Iron Man. We are. Hi, welcome to Marvel Standom, where we bring you all the goings-on in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and beyond. Today, we're stepping into the Beyond territory, not in the terms of the Beyonder. I do not have my Michael Jackson hair or my leisure suit, but we are going into the world of comics. My name is Joe George, and I'm flying solo today in Standom. I'm a pop culture writer and a huge comic book nerd who has been reading this nonsense for decades now. And I'm going to be hosting today's episode that's going to be all about the best Marvel comics that came out in 2023. This episode is powered by our friends at eBay, where you can find all of these comics and variant editions and so much more. Be sure to check them out for all of your collectible needs. But without further delay, let's get into it. This was a fairly tumultuous year for Marvel comics overall, and I feel like a lot of the conversation about Marvel's output this year has been dominated by editorial choices or controversial choices. And while there's value in all of that, uh, we're not going to be talking about Paul today. We're not going to be talking about Spider-Man at all because some really great Marvel comics came out this year, and this is a celebration. So I want to start by looking at some of the Marvel comics that weren't focusing so much on high concept ideas or breaking the status quo or revitalizing Ms. Marvel as a mutant, just comics that gave us old school superhero fun, nuts and bolts action that you come to Marvel comics for on a daily basis. And I want to start with the new Avengers run written by Jed McKay with art by Carlos Villa. I really enjoy McKay's work elsewhere, especially on Moon Knight. And so I went into this run with a lot of excitement. And I feel like flagship books like uh, Avengers kind of fall into one of two categories. You either get the sort of B and C list lineup where writers use their opportunity to work on a major book to bring in fan favorite characters. And I think we saw that in Jason Aaron's run, which I did like quite a bit, where you get... You know, you got uh, Blade and Man-Thing showing up. And then the other half, and this is what McKay's doing, is using the flagship book to be all about the big characters. And I mean this as a compliment, and I know this is a Marvel show, so I hope this is okay, but McKay's book reminds me a lot in scope of the old Grant Morrison run on Justice League in the 90s, where Morrison looked at the Justice League and said, we have all of these iconic heroes. 
let's put them together and have them fight you know, larger than life threats. And that's really what McKay is doing here with this lineup that's led by Captain Marvel. But we've kind of got all all stars here. We've got Vision, Scarlet Witch, Black Panther, the Sam Wilson Captain America, um, Iron Man, Thor. It's all of the big heavy hitters. And the downside of that type of book is that each one of these characters have their own books. And so you can't do too much character development per se. You're not going to have a major thing happen to Thor in an Avengers book when he's got his own book over there. And McKay gets around that problem by focusing on the interdynamics between the characters and, again, these larger-than-life threats. And the first arc has dealt somewhat with Kang the Conqueror, which can be a little bit of a problem given what's going on in the MCU, but it also deals with these sort of uh, Morrison-esque trans-dimensional threats, these, these characters who can affect all of reality. And I really love Carlos Villa's approach because he really nails that balance between big superhero action in which each one of the Avengers kind of pairs off to fight one-on-one -on -one with one of the enemies. But then he lays out his pages in such a way that all of the heroes are on the same page connected by overlapping dialogue or uh, thought balloons. And all credit to the letterer Corey Petit, a name you're going to hear a lot today, for being able to use that as connective tissue. Uh, Frederico Blee's colors are big and bright. This is blockbuster superhero storytelling, and I really love it, especially because McCabe finds quiet, interesting moments. You know, the 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 climax of the first arc, spoilers here, I guess, builds to Captain America and Black Panther simply talking down the villain, not punching them in the face, but having a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. And I think that's just such an interesting way to give us both the big action and the sort of paragon nature of these heroes. It's wonderful stuff. On the complete opposite end, we have Incredible Hulk. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about L. Ewing's work and his work on the Immortal Hulk a few years ago, that long horror style run on the Hulk. In some ways... The new Incredible Hulk run feels like a throwback to what Ewing was doing because it is not superhero action. It is, as the first arc declares, about the age of monsters. It's written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, who I think most people know from his really great uh, DC work. Uh, but here he's going back and kind of like Ewing, getting back down to the fundamentals of the character. He understands that the Hulk is a monster. He understands that the story at its core is about poor Bruce Banner being haunted by his evil gamma radiated alter ego. And it does kind of play the fugitive aspects of that where he's on the run and he finds himself in different locales. However, he also pairs that with a real love for Marvel's monsters. Over the few issues that we've had already this year, Ghost Rider, or at least a variation of Ghost Rider, has shown up. Uh, we've seen Man-Thing and Ted Salas, his human nature, uh, played in. There's throwbacks to the sort of elemental horror of Ewing's run. It's a horror book all through and through. And Nick Klein, who uh, pencils one art, and Travel Forum, who pencils the other, both of them lean into the horror 
uh, aspects. The transformations here of Banner to Hulk and vice versa are just as grotesque and bodily disturbing as anything that we saw in the Immortal Hulk, which, as you probably know, took a page from John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, Klein and Foreman, I think, are both better pencilers than Joe Bennett, who worked on Immortal Hulk. And they're they're so much more fluid and disturbing. Foreman is really good, and I don't mean to diminish his work here, but I really want to underscore Nick Klein's work here. He's really penciling in a variety of styles, but feels very much in line with the great Marvel horror horror pencilers. Um, I'm thinking guys like Bill Sienkiewicz and Bernie Wrightson. His work is very much in that vein. And Matthew Wilson's colors are just wonderful. They have a sort of water, watercolor wash, this this sort of weird haze that's over all of the scenes, especially those when uh, when the Hulk is fighting in a swamp. that just ups those eerie vibes. It's really great stuff. Uh, the letters, Corey Petit and Travis Lanham, find different but clear ways of expressing the Hulk's dialogue. You know, sometimes colored word balloons can be a little bit difficult to read. Not a problem here. And it really underscores the the threat and the otherness of the Hulk here. Then we've got the sensational She-Hulk, which is, of course, a Hulk book. And Hulk does show up in the most recent issue of Sensational She-Hulk. But really, this is a romantic comedy slash courtroom drama slash legal book. Simply put, Sensational She-Hulk and She-Hulk that came before it is what the She-Hulk attorney at law TV show should have been. If you've been watching Standom, you know that most of us weren't a big fan of that series, save for Alec. This, I know Alec doesn't read comics, but man, I wish I could make him read this because this is what I want out of it. It's written by Rainbow Roll and uh, penciled by Andres Gunley. Uh, the colors are by D. Kunif and the letters are by Joe Caramanga. Roel is best known as a novelist of young adult fiction, mostly, but she understands how to write superhero comics. Her sense of pacing and timing here is just perfect. She knows how to use empty panels with no speech to set up a gag or an emotional beat. She knows how to use the voiceover boxes uh, to kind of play with the metatextualness. It's not quite as far as, say, like the John Byrne run as winking at the audience, but there are elements to it. But what's really impressive here is how Roll makes us care about the primary love interest, Jack of Hearts. Jack of Hearts sucks. He's one of my least favorite characters. I was so happy when he blew up and killed a bunch of Avengers way back in the Avengers disassembled run. Just a terrible character. And somehow Roel has made him an interesting, vulnerable character, a wonderful romantic lead. It's really great stuff. And I need to praise here Genelay and Kunif, the, the artist and the colorist here, because Genelay, first of all, has an understanding of body language and facial expressions. There are action scenes in Sensational She-Hulk and She-Hulk. You know, they uh, She-Hulk does start a punch club, a fight club with the Thing and Titana and Volcana and these characters. And so there are punch out scenes, but really it's devoted to these sort of romance moments and character moments. And she just doesn't just draw She-Hulk as this giant, gorgeous, statuesque woman. He draws her as a woman who is slumping sometimes or who is trying to work up her courage and the transitions between her and Jen, always very interesting. And she too knows how to lay out a page so that those pauses really pop. And 
Deconiff's colors, simple primary colors. This feels like it's not a throwback to 60s pop art from which Marvel sprung, but rather it feels like it's using those lessons of simple, bold colors in order to enhance the story. It never feels kitsch. It always feels like it's part of a, a larger sort of thematic thread. And so these three books, if you just want superheroes doing superhero-y things, Sensational She-Hulk, The Incredible Hulk, and The Avengers, you cannot go wrong with any of those. Now, the rest are going to get a little bit more complicated, but before I do that, we need to bring you this brief message from our sponsor of this episode, eBay. eBay is the premier destination for collecting comics both old and new. Whether it's that highly sought-after iconic comic or an obscure niche that speaks directly to you, odds are you'll certainly find it on eBay. Here's a list of comics that are must-haves for any fan of the Marvel pets. Lockjaw and the Pet Avengers 1 Lucky the Pizza Dog won our hearts from his first appearance in Hawkeye 1, but the best boy in the Marvel Universe is still Lockjaw, the teleporting pet of the royal and human family. Lockjaw has made plenty of appearances in Fantastic Four comics and Marvel Snap decks alike, but he finally got the center stage in the miniseries Lockjaw and the Pet Avengers. Lockjaw and the Pet Avengers finds Lockjaw assembling his own team when the Infinity Gems go missing. Joining Lockjaw is Throg, the frog with the powers of Thor, Kitty Pride's pet dragon Lockheed, Falcon's bird Redwing, Speedball's cat Hairball, and Lion, the pet dog of Aunt May Parker. Together, this unlikely team tells one of the most exciting and most adorable tales in the Marvel Universe. Uncanny X-Men 166 Speaking of Lockheed, the Purple Dragon has been a constant by the side of X-Men's Kitty Pride and Magic, adding a fantasy element to the beloved mutant heroes. Lockheed has played an important role in stories involving not just the main X-Men team, but also Excalibur, the New Mutants, and more. Technically, Lockheed first appeared in a fairy tale that Kitty told young Ilana Rasputin in 1981's Uncanny X-Men 153. But the dragon entered main continuity when the X-Men battled the evil aliens The Brood in 1983's Uncanny X-Men 166. Lockheed instantly endears himself to readers by incinerating some Brood, rescuing Kitty, and setting the stage for decades of adventures to come. Marvel Tales starring Peter Porker the Spectacular Spider-Ham 1 Peter Porker the Spectacular Spider-Ham is nobody's pet, but he is the greatest hero in Marvel's Animal Kingdom. Born on the animal-filled universe of 8311, Peter was just a regular old spider in the lab of scientist May Parker. When May accidentally irradiated herself with an atomic-powered hairdryer, she went mad and bit Peter, transforming him into the spectacular Spider-Ham. Written by Tom DeFalco and penciled by Mark Armstrong, Marvel Tales starring Peter Porker the Spectacular Spider-Ham not only introduces the titular Hamhead, but also a bevy of superheroic creatures, including Captain America and Goose Rider. Devil Dinosaur 1 Any kid would love having a teleporting dog or a fire-breathing dragon as a pet, but if they're being honest, most kids would really want to have a pet dinosaur. And that's exactly what the young caveman Moonboy gets in 1978's Devil Dinosaur 1, an oddball classic from the mind of the one and only Jack Kirby. Devil Dinosaur 1 introduces readers to Moonboy and his tribe of small folk, peaceful Cro-Magnons under attack by their deadly counterparts, the Killer Folk. 
With the help of Moon Boy, a young dinosaur escapes the killer folk to grow into the powerful Devil Dinosaur, the strangest creature in this masterpiece of Kirby's mythic storytelling. Start or expand your Marvel collection today at ebay.com. And now, back to the show. And we're back! Let's continue on by looking at comics that shake up the status quo. Because, of course, we're talking monthly superhero comics, which means that every couple of years, everything has to change. And if you're taking the time to watch this show, you know that there's a couple of big changes coming up for some major characters, starting with the X-Men. The X-Men got a giant boost and a reboot in 2019 when Jonathan Hickman came on and did the Powers of X and the House of X miniseries, which launched this idea of Krakoa, a sovereign mutant nation, and really changed a lot of the dynamics of the characters. I have been mixed on the output since Hickman left. I think some of the writers have been able to build and expand those ideas. I'm thinking in particular Benjamin Percy. Others, and I won't name names here, have not really been able to meld the sort of superhero action and Hickman's high ideas. And I don't feel like Hickman really got to pay off those ideas before he left the book. So I'm somewhat looking forward to Fall of X, which is going to see an end to the Krakoa era, at least as we know it, and some sort of reboot. But along the way, there's been a couple of X books that I think do a really outstanding job of playing with those ideas and with the key ideas of the X-Men, starting with the immortal X-Men, which is building into part of this fall of X story. It's written by Karen Gillan. There's art by Lucas Wernick. The colors are from Daniel Curiel, and the letters are from Clayton Culls. Immortal X-Men, it plays like a side spinoff issue to the sort of mainstream X books. And by that, I mean, not too many major events happen in this book. And it can be really confusing to read if you're just reading Immortal X-Men and not any of the other X-Men books. But it deals with the sort of character fallout, which, again, could be confusing. But I really appreciate the way that Gillen slows down these big concepts and focuses on individual characters. In particular, a lot of this series has been about Mr. Sinister, who has just been a delight in the Krakoa era. He is snarky. He is evil. He's got all of these clones. He's so much fun. And that does a lot to mitigate what can be a sort of a dreariness of the most recent books, because the other aspect that it focuses on a lot is mystique and uh, destiny, not as much as, say, X-Men Blue, which we aren't going to talk about now, but it does focus on those relationships, and that can be a little bit of a downer. All of the stuff with Sinister is a lot of fun. And what's really kind of interesting about uh, Immortal X-Men is that it feels like it takes all of the craziness of the X-Men books, especially from the Claremont era, in which you have all of this drama and all of these crosses and double crosses and all of these reveals and people dying and coming back to life. And it compacts them to a point that they're almost overheated, especially if you're just reading Immortal X-Men. And that can be a lot if you're not on the wavelength of these books. But if you love high drama X-Men, you're really going to have a good time with this. I need to point out Lucas Wenrick's work, especially his compositions. He's got really great pacing. He really does a great job of 
staging these conversations around the table, which could be so boring, but he knows how to make them work. That said, I do think that he is one of those artists who needs a proper inker. I'm an old fart and I like it when pencilers and inkers are two different jobs because I just, I don't think Wernick does his work any favors with his pencils. And I feel like sometimes he relies a little bit too much on the colors, but David Cruel to flesh out the situation that his, his pencils just aren't getting across outside of that though. Wernick does nail the most important parts of the book, which is to say he knows how to make characters talking to one another in scheming. Very, very interesting. It makes for a fun read. The next status quo book that I need to look at is, of course, another Fall of X book, another X-Men book, and that is X-Men Red. The writer here is Al Ewing, who I've already praised. The art comes from Ildre Chenar. Colors come from Frederico Blee, and letters come from Ariana Mar. X-Men Red takes place on Araco or Mars. And I have to admit that all of the Mars stuff was kind of my least favorite idea in the Hickman reboot and all of the Araco, this sort of alternative uh, mutant world wasn't really interesting in Hickman stuff. But X-Men Red has really won me over mostly by giving us an awesome depiction of Storm. Storm is one of the best X-Men. And she has been portrayed so poorly so many times when it's not Claremont writing her, especially. And here Ewing gives us Storm as a benevolent goddess. Storm as somebody with so much power. Storm as the leader of the Araco mutants, while also trying to not be the leader. There's that great panel where she tells Vulcan there are no emperors on Araco. And that's not true because she is the leader and Ewing really has a good time playing with those tensions. Furthermore, this is not like the Immortal X-Men, a book about people sitting around in a room and backstabbing one another. This is a proper action book. And in fact, the Martian aliens, the hordes of apocalypse, all of these warriors that come to fight are often leading to big battles. And Ildre Chenar does a fantastic job portraying these as gigantic, epic fights. And it's almost like a Godzilla movie, uh, X-Men Red is, in that it combines really interesting character moments with giant action in a way that does not diminish either one of them. And again, Chinar is the secret here. He's so detailed. He's paying so much attention to his compositions. It's wonderful stuff, and it works really well with the big ideas of Al Ewing. I don't know where X-Men Red is going to go. I feel like this is going to be at the center of a lot of the Fall of X stuff, but I'm really excited for the way that it's changing up the X-Men and kind of redeeming one of my least favorite aspects of the Krakoa era right before it ends. Now, of course, Jonathan Hickman is at the center of the X-Men Krakoa era, and he left the book, but he's back at Marvel this year with two books or two series that... Of course, like Hickman does, radically change the Marvel Universe. So far, Gods hasn't really clicked with me, but I am excited about Ultimate Invasion and Ultimate Universe. Uh, Hickman here is working with Brian Hitch, who most of you would know from other 2000s era big books, including The Ultimates. He's inked by Andrew Curry. The colors here are from Alex Sinclair, and the letters come from Joe Caramanga. Ultimate Invasion 
is interesting because in some ways it is very much a throwback to the original launch of Ultimate Marvel Comics in 2000, which if you're an old fart like me and you remember, the point of Ultimate Comics was to get away from the messy continuity and give a universe that resets with Spider-Man is 15, the X-Men are teenagers and brand new and so on. It was supposed to be a clear continuity free reboot. And there are aspects of that to Ultimate Invasion. We get the maker, the evil Reed Richards from Hickman's original run on Ultimate Fantastic Four, escaping the 616 Marvel Universe. But instead of going to the original Ultimate Universe, instead the maker creates a new universe. And so there is a fresh start element here. And Hitch's pencils feel very much like they did back in the 2000s. But also, Alex Sinclair is using very digital, overtly digital coloring, not quite as obnoxious as the original Ultimate Comics were, but enough to let you know that he's doing a throwback to that. Karamanga's letters are in that lowercase font style that is synonymous with the Ultimate Universe. And so... It's very much building those aspects. And there are the big widescreen action scenes that Hitch draws so well. And Curry's inks are perfect for Hitch's artwork. It brings a softness to his line work that kind of prevents him from feeling too stiff, which can sometimes happen with Hitch's artwork. I, I think especially when he was working on JLA over at DC, it was just, it was, it was just did not fluid. Curry knows how to make those lines and those realistic textures that Hitch has feel soft and flowing, which really helps with the big over-the-top action scenes. All of that said, Ultimate Invasion also feels like the exact opposite of what the original Ultimate Comics was trying to do in that it is very much in conversation with the 616 universe. It's a world in which the maker tries to create his own universe without heroes, and the central tension comes from heroes manifesting again. And so on the one hand, it knows that it's giving us versions of the characters that are different. We have a young teenage Tony Stark here as Iron Lad. Reed Richards in this universe is Dr. Doom. We have, of course, because it's a Hickman book, there is an Illuminati, a group of secretive superheroes who sit around in Hellfire Club rooms and plan the universe. And so all of that, it knows that we know that stuff and it plays with it. It works for me at this point, which is why I'm including it on this list. I'll be curious to see how it pays off when we get the proper ultimate books later on. I'm especially looking forward to the Black Panther and the Spider-Man books. We'll see if they can build on these big ideas. But as it is right now, I can't ignore the audacity and the excitement of Hickman's ultimate invasion. Last, I want to talk about a book that isn't quite on the same level concept-wise, but is, of course, headed to a massive change in the status quo. I'm talking here about Moon Knight, which, again, is written by Jed McKay. The art comes from Alessandro Cappuccio. Colors are by Rachel Rosenberg, and the letters are by Corey Petit. I love what McKay has done with Moon Knight. And that's tough to say because I really love the Moon Knight runs up until McKay took over. Ellis's run was fantastic. Lemire and Smallwood's run. I love the way that they dealt with the multiple personalities. And yet McKay comes in and he introduces this fantastic concept with the Midnight Mission. 
It's a place where people in the middle of the night can come and they can talk to Moon Knight in his Mr. Knight form and tell them their problems, and then he can go help them. That's proper superhero stuff, and I'm always a sucker for superheroes helping people. It also works because it synthesizes many of the aspects of Moon Knight, especially those from the Alice and Lemire runs. All of that said, I do have to mark this a little bit because... I, I hate to be cruel here, but I don't love Alessandro Cappuccino's art. And I can't put my finger on exactly why. It's just there's too many sharp angles that are then undercut by digital blurring effects. And it kind of has a glossy feel that hurts the composition. Once again, I think Cappuccino is one of those who would really benefit from a proper inker. And I mean an ink on paper inker, even though I'm not going to get, ever get that. But I do think that his... Figure work, which is really interesting, and his compositions, which are strong, are just getting hurt by these digital blurs and by the poor inking. That said, I really love Rosenberg's colors. Most of the Moon Knight stories take place at night, obviously, and she has this neon rain slick approach that feels like something out of uh, Michael Mann's movie Thief. I mean, I can hear the... Uh, the, the 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 synths playing when I read this book. It's really gorgeous in that way. If we could just up that art just a little bit more, I think we could have a real all-timer of a book here. But even with that critique, it's really exciting to see what McKay is doing with Moon Knight. I am really interested in where the death of Moon Knight is going. I mean, Moon Knight's died so many times, but McKay has demonstrated that he has a handle on this character and can take it into interesting directions. And this year's Moon Knight books have all been building up to that, and they're definitely worth reading. But as much as I like all these books, it's time to talk about the three books that I just love. My favorite books from Marvel in 2023, starting with Fantastic Four. I love the Fantastic Four, and I'm a big fan of Dan Slott. But I didn't love his run. And of course, this was the big relaunch of the Fantastic Four back into the Marvel Universe after they had been missing for quite some time. And Slot just his audacious moves just didn't work for me there. On top of that, I didn't know Ryan North's work very well. I, I'm sorry. I know Squirrel Girl has a ton of fans. I'm not quite one of them. So I didn't know what to expect going into the, his Fantastic Four run. And then when I heard about the premise, I was let down even more because it begins with the Fantastic Four separated, something terrible, some terrible secret happened in New York, and everybody hates the Fantastic Four, Reed Richards in particular, and the Baxter building's gone, and I just went into it going, oh, I'm so sick of that. I'm so sick of Reed being vaguely evil and having the family hate one another and deconstructing the superheroes that way. And so I am so thrilled to tell you that that's not what Ryan Norris' Fantastic Four does. Yes, it does begin the first few issues with individual stories. We get one with uh, Ben Grimm, the thing, and his wife, Alicia. We get one solo story with Johnny Storm, which is just this wonderful uh, pro-union, pro-labor story that has some great jokes and Johnny has a terrible mustache. Wonderful stuff. And then we get a story with Reed and Sue by themselves, not with the kids. So it does begin like that. 
But then when they all come together and we get the explanation of what happened, it's one of the most cathartic moments I've ever had as a fan of the Fantastic Four because it acknowledges that Reed is a big brain and Reed made a mistake, but it also reminds us that this is a family and they love and forgive one another. And so that sweetness and sense of fun drives the entire book. This understands that these are colorful scientists and explorers more than they are superheroes and even coelho's line work is just fantastic he's got dynamic images there's a cartoony nature to all of the characters uh jesus abertov's colors accentuate that we're back in the bright blue but the way that he colors the thing and the things tacky hawaiian shirts all just wonderful Joe Caramanga is on letters, and as you can guess by the fact I keep saying his name, he is a fantastic letterer. It's all wonderful. This feels a lot to me like the classic Mark Wade and Mike Waringo run from the late 90s, early 2000s, which is what got me into the Fantastic Four in the first place. So if you love the Fantastic Four, you need to be reading this book. If you don't get the Fantastic Four, read this book and you'll get it. One of the things I really love about this is the way that uh, even Coelho comes up with interesting ways to visualize Reed Richards' intelligence via his superpowers. You know, it looks weird when he stretches his body in all these weird places, but that's that's kind of what the character should be. And these are interesting takes that I've never seen before. I I think this book is so much fun. You need to read it, especially if you think, like I do, that a strong Fantastic Four book is necessary for a strong Marvel universe. Next, this shouldn't be too much of a surprise given how much praise I've given him, but next I'm going to talk about L. Ewing on The Immortal Thor. The art comes from Martin Cocholo, the colors come from Matthew Wilson, and Joe Sabino does the letters. Immortal Thor is very much a sequel to Immortal Hulk, but in thematic terms. It is not a horror book, even though there are things that are kind of scary about it, but rather, in the same way that the Immortal Hulk looked at the Hulk and said, this guy is a monster created by an aberration in nature, let's explore that. Immortal Thor looks at Thor and says, this is a god, a mythical figure who has become a superhero. Let's play with that, that metatextual element, that mythical element. And so what this book does is it pits Thor and the Warriors 3 and Sith and Valkyrie and Loki especially against elder god versions of the asgardians these are these are lovecraftian creatures to a certain extent but they are the source from which all the other gods stem and so there's this interesting bit here where thor is like i'm not really a god i'm i'm an alien superhero who gets worshipped by a god but i'm not really a god and then uh Tyrannos, the elder god version of thor shows up and says yeah you're a pale variation from me and all of these elder gods these these titan-esque creatures are invading our reality which throws the entire concept of thor into question on the one hand that definitely lends itself to big over-the-top battles and martin cocholo and matthew wilson understand the scale of these battles we get just wonderful shots that are uh, sort of worm's eye view, even though we're looking over Thor's shoulder of Tyrannos 
towering over the group. And Wilson's colors, especially the way that he lights the lightning that's coming out of Tyrannos' clouds, it's just it it engulfs the entire page. It feels like it's all surrounding you, like on an IMAX screen, even though you're just holding a comic book page. And there can be a inverse property of scale here where the larger something gets, the smaller it feels. And it's all credit to Cocholo and Wilson that they don't lose Thor. They don't make Tyrannos look small. They they do a good job moving between shot to shot to remind us that Thor is a massive man too. <laughs> and there's a wonderful bit where they ask if, if Tyrannos and his type can tear through gods as if they were people, what can he do to people? And Ewing wisely cuts back to let us see what's happening to the regular people. And so it's a deft handling of scale that just doesn't go over the top. And ultimately, we're only a few issues in, but ultimately the immortal Thor is reinforcing why Thor is a superhero. As dark and deconstructive as it gets, as metatextual and mythical as it gets, it understands or at least firmly believes that Thor is a superhero who does good and keeps pushing that, which is refreshing for an optimist like me who likes superheroes to be good guys. I love all of these, but my favorite book of the year, and this shouldn't be too much of a surprise because I think I listed it as my favorite Marvel book last year and second favorite uh, comic book of all time last year. It's Daredevil by Chip Zdarsky and Marco Cicchetto. Uh, again, Matthew Wilson's on colors and Clayton Cowles on letters. This year saw the end of Zdarsky's run with the Red Fist saga. And in the Red Fist saga, we get uh, Matt Murdock marrying Elektra and the two of them becoming Daredevil, joining a group called the Fist, who is the immortal enemies of the hand, the evil ninjas. And that's all fine and good. But what's really interesting here is the way that Zdarsky uses that premise to explore both Matt Murdock's religion and his role as a superhero. You see, Murdock feels like superheroes are just repeating the same cycles over and over again. They find a bad guy, they punch him in the face, they throw him in jail, the bad guy gets out, they find the bad guy, they punch him in the face, they throw him in jail, which is, of course, how superhero comics have always worked. This goes back to the illusion of change that Stan Lee talked about or the repetitive nature of serialized stories that Umberto Eco talked about, that idea that superhero comics work by suggesting movement and development without actually giving it to us. And in the Red Fist saga, Zdarsky is using Daredevil to try to break that. He breaks out a bunch of supervillains and takes them to the Fist Island where he gives them the opportunity to reform to give them different lives. And he brings Leonard Sampson, you know, the super therapist to the island so they can talk through their problems. And that sounds so cheesy, but it's not. Zdarsky cuts that with that deep-seated uh, holy fear that Murdoch has as a Christian who dresses like the devil. <laughs> he deep, he, he never gets away from the fundamental tragedy that's always in Matt Murdock's life, the mistakes that he's made, the way that people he loves constantly dies. And so 
the heroism that we see in Zdarsky's Daredevil is not so much him fighting bad guys, even though that does happen. There's, of course, a fight between Daredevil and the Punisher because the Punisher works for the hand now, and that's all satisfying. And, of course, uh, there's a bit where the the Avengers show up and Daredevil has to fight them and a cool bit where he takes down Spider-Man. All of that's there. But that's not the heroism of Daredevil as Zdarsky understands it. It is fundamentally about faith that Daredevil believes, even though he does not see it as true, he believes that he can break these cycles, that he can redeem these characters, that he can do God's work on Earth as a superhero. That is just a refreshing take on superheroes. As somebody who's been reading them for a long time, this is a really interesting way of giving us an exceptional character who does larger work. The religious overtones work here better than they have with any other writer uh, since. And I say this as a highly religious person. This feels very authentic. And I haven't talked about Chichetto's art here, but uh, Chichetto feels very much like he's in the vein of Frank Miller big blocky characters especially in this long sequence where the rain is falling down uh dramatic poses great use of negative space and blacks and all of this is in service of this internal struggle that's happening within matt murdoch i like the first few issues of solid and ahmed's run that we've gotten but i'm going to be honest it's going to be hard for anybody to follow what zadarsky's done here proving once again that he is one of the best writers that is working in comics today and proving once again that Daredevil is secretly. I don't know that I want to say Marvel's best character because Spider-Man still exists, but at least this year, Daredevil is Marvel's best character and Daredevil under Zdarsky and Chichito is the best comic book that Marvel put out in 2023. So those are my top picks for this year's Marvel comics. And that's it for this episode of Marvel Standom. Be sure to check us out on our web home at denofgeek.com for all of our Marvel coverage. Also check us out at Facebook and Instagram at Den of Geek, on X slash Twitter and YouTube at Den of Geek US, and our Twitch and TikTok channels at Den of Geek TV. Tune in next time for our year in review, in which we'll look at everything that 2023 gave us, not just comic books. And we'll also be looking ahead for what's in store for 2024. This has been Marvel Standom for the Den of Geek Network. Until next time, be good to each other and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Marvel Standom, produced by Andrew Halley, Kirsten Howard, and Joe George. Hosted by Kirsten Howard. Editing and graphics by Andrew Halley. Social media coordinator, Lee Parham. Additional artwork by Chloe Lewis. Production assistant, Michael R. Music license from soundstripe.com. Marvel Standom is a production of the Den of Geek Network. For more information, visit denofgeek.com.